So Lord willing, this will be the last week I sit, but I think it's only fair you sit when I preach. Some of you have been uh, very helpful in suggesting that I get a better chair up here. And so you've sent me pictures of thrones (laughs) that you wanted the church to purchase. No. Some of you have a little bit too much time on your hands. One other thing before I get into the text, a number of the commentators I've been reading is is in sort of helping to prepare uh, in in preaching through the book of Mark, mentioned that Mark, in fact, it's true for many books of the Bible, many books of the Bible are written to people, in fact, most of the people of God for the thousands of years that the people of Israel were were, were looking in God's word and even for, for believers in Jesus Christ after Jesus came, Many, many people cannot read the word or they don't have access to a copy of God's word. And so the only way they hear God's word is when they listen to it. And a lot of commentators have mentioned that Mark seems to be very much designed as a book to be heard as much as it is to be read. So some of you may want to take and find a recording of the book of Mark, take it on your commute, uh, do it when you're running, uh, whatever, or re- if you're rehabbing your re- knee replacement surgery, and listen uh, to the book of Mark as it is presented orally as a way of better understanding the book. Uh, I think you might find that helpful. As we looked at last week, Mark is writing to believers, probably who are in Rome under the emperor Nero, and they're under persecution. Mark wants them to understand who Jesus is, that he's the son who has come to reestablish God's righteous and gracious rule over the world. And Jesus has come to bring them into a right relationship with the son, the king, the co-regent of God, and then to help these followers of Jesus, even those that are under persecution, to be part of bringing this message of reconciliation to the world, to see more people come under the rule and reign of God, even as we anticipate the entire world coming under the rule and reign of God in the coming kingdom. So let us turn to Mark 2 and, and discuss the text that was just read, And what I want us to see in not only this text, and I'm going to pull in one more uh, short story in Mark 2, to help us understand Jesus' foundational work in bringing the world back under the authority of God. There's a foundational work that Jesus does, and I want us to, to learn four lessons about this foundational work that Jesus does. So let's look at the first lesson. And the first lesson is this, our greatest need, your greatest need and my greatest need is forgiveness. To be forgiven by God, to get back into a right relationship with God is the most important issue that all of us face. Let's set the stage here in the story. Uh, We've just read here that Jesus has come back to Capernaum. There's a house full of people, so many people in the house that the crowd is outside the door, so it's even difficult to get a place in the house. In verse 2, at the very end of verse 2, it says, and in he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. He's preaching to them the gospel of God. 
the gospel that says you need to repent, turn from your sins, follow me, and, and you will be part of this coming kingdom as we seek, God seeks to rule the world again. Verse 3, we read on. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. You have to understand that the, a first century Jewish home was usually a one-story home. It had a stairway outside the house. There would be beams that connected the four walls. And on top of these beams, they would put a combination of mud and straw together to form the flat roof. And they would often have to maintain that roof by either putting water on the roof or bringing more straw and more mud to deal with the fact that those things would often erode off of the roof. And in order to protect the home, they would have to do that. The reality is, is when these four friends dig through the roof, it's very likely, in fact, it would be impossible for straw and mud not to be falling down on the people in the house, maybe even on Jesus himself. It's a fairly dramatic scene. And so now this, these, this paralyzed man is now on the ground with Jesus in a house full of people, with lots of people outside, and that man is sitting there in a room that has just had its roof excavated. Now in verse 5, we see the very first words of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. And you know, you think about that and you go, what? Your sins are forgiven? <laughs> There's no mention of sins by this paralytic. Um, um, we, we don't get any notion of what he was about. He clearly was paralyzed. His four friends are concerned. And of course, we, we learned last week that Jesus was healing all throughout the region of Galilee. These four friends want their paralyzed friend to be healed of his paralysis. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, my son, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is telling us and illustrating for us, as often Mark does, is illustrate truth by giving a story about what Jesus does, is that getting right with God, having our sins forgiven, is the most crucial need that we have. And the astounding thing that Jesus is saying here to this man, this paralyzed man, is that you my son, are now in, in a, in back into a right relationship with God. Your sins have been forgiven. And that is the most critical issue for you, and I am going to do that for you, and it's the most critical issue for us. I think we often miss this. We look at a story like this and, and, and think, well, the biggest problem for the paralytic, he was paralyzed. But it was not the biggest problem in his life. If Jesus had simply healed the paralyzed man, that would not have solved his biggest need. And there would have been other needs that had crashed into his life, even if he could walk. The paralyzed man, like every single one of us in this room, has a sin problem that separates us from God. And that problem is the deepest, most profound problem in our life. In fact, the heart of all of our other problems stem from the fact that sin has separated us from God. 
Now, I don't think this means that this man's paralysis is a direct result of some specific sin in his life. We're not told that. But the root of all brokenness in the world is sin. The reason all of us get sick, the reason all of us have bodies that are going to grow old and eventually die, the reason all of us experience injustice and hurts from different people in our life is all direct, directly attributable to the fact that sin has entered the world and every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our world has been corrupted by that sin. And what's very fascinating to me about the issue of the forgiveness of sins is that we live in a culture that works really hard through the media, through just the, the culture we live in. The culture tells us over and over again, there's no objective standard of right and wrong. The culture tells us, don't let anybody judge you. The culture tells us, you've got to construct your own version of what's right and wrong for you. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And you would think in a culture like that, we would be more free. There would be no sin. But good grief, you know this is true. Through social media, we live, in spite of the fact that our culture basically denies the reality of God's word and God's standard, we live in the most judgmental culture in the world. And no offense to the Puritans, I think the Puritans often get a bad rap, but this culture, in, in, its, in its godlessness and, and no right and wrong, is more judge, makes the Puritans look like antinomians. And the reality is, if you talk to people, even people who don't believe in God at all, would not accept the Bible in any real sense. I've had enough conversations with people who've told me, in a moment of transparency, that they have a deep sense, no matter how successful they may be on the outside, they have a deep sense that they are not right. They have a deep sense that they are not the people they ought to be. And have a deep sense of failure. And that's right. None of us are born into the world right with God. We're not whole. We lack, we need. We have a sense of guilt and shame that even our culture can't seem to wipe away from us. And the Bible calls this sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the one verse that can almost be scientifically and empirically true. Found to be true. And Jesus is saying to this man, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is giving what this sin most needs. Forgiveness. And that is what each of us needs more than anything else, to be forgiven by the God who made us. One of my good friends um, uh, taught a Sunday school class, this is, uh, this is a couple of decades ago, and he shared a night of fear that he had just had recently to the class. And I resonated with it because I've had this same kind 
of cascading sense of fears creep into my heart. He starts to tell the story like this. He was leading his family's business that had been in the family for decades. The, the business was having difficulty. And he was perplexed. He couldn't seem to solve it. And so one night in the midst of trying to think about how to get the business moving forward again, he began to think like this. His first thought was, if I can't solve the problems in the family business, the business is going to fail. And the business is going to go bankrupt. And that's going to be a financial disaster, but I have a lot of people in my own family who work here. And when we go bankrupt, they're going to blame me for everything. And the guilt and shame of that thought crippled him. He then took the next step in his fear. He goes, you know, if the business fails, I'm probably not going to be able to get a job in the field that I'm in now. I'm probably not going to get a job that pays anywhere near because of this massive stain on my business acumen, my business record. So I'm going to have trouble getting another job. And you know what? Maybe I'm going to lose my house. And then he goes on. He says, and if I lose my house, I know my wife really loves me, but I'm not sure she wants to live out her days in a car. And then he thought, my, 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 my kids are almost in college, and if I don't have a job, and, and I go bankrupt, and, and I'm living in a house, I'm not going to be able to help them to go to college. My kids might not like this situation, and maybe they'll leave me too. And then he realized, oh my goodness, I don't have a job. Now I don't have health insurance. I'm not going to get medical care. I'm going to get sick. I'm not going to get cared for. I'm going to get sick and not get the treatment I need, and then I'm going to die. So as he describes the story, he says, I went from bankruptcy to death in about, you know, 27 seconds in my mind. And he said he was absolutely overwhelmed with fear, sweating, panicked. So then he went through it one more time. He says, okay, I'm not going to figure this out. The company goes bankrupt. My family will hate me because their investment in the company went down. Now they don't have jobs. I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to lose the house. I'm going to be living in a car. My wife's not going to like that. She's going to leave. My girls are not going to speak to me anymore because I can't afford them to get to college. I'm going to get sick. I'm not going to get the treatment. I'm going to die. And he said one more thing. I'm going to die, he said. And then, and then he said, and then what? Then I'm going to live with Jesus forever. In a remade world where there's no bankruptcy and no sickness and no death and no need for health insurance and I'll be reunited with my wife and my girls and, and we will spend eternity together in this blessed communion never to have to say goodbye. That's the ultimate result of all the things I'm afraid of. And he said the fear just left him. The anxiety just went away. And he was able to go into work the next day in spite of the fact that the problems had not been solved, but he was a completely different person. Why? Because he understood that he was forgiven by God and that was his most important need that overshadowed all of his other needs. And when he understood that his main need had been provided by God, forgiveness, he had been made right with God, everything else in his life had perspective, even though the problems he was dealing with had not been solved. That's the first lesson. Forgiveness is our greatest need to be forgiven by God 
That's the first lesson. There's a second lesson. Let's pick up the story in verse 6. After Jesus tells him, my son, your sins are forgiven, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the reality is these religious leaders are absolutely correct. If Jesus is not God and he's saying, my sons, your sins are forgiven, that would be blasphemy, taking the prerogative of God when you're not God. But there's another issue here. Could Jesus be God? Could he be God in the flesh? Could he be God himself? And if he is God, then Jesus absolutely could be the one who could forgive this man's sins and ours as well. The second lesson is Jesus is the only one who can forgive our sins. Verse 8, we continue the story. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them. So Jesus reads their minds. He's God. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk? It's a pretty clever rejoinder that Jesus has. Jesus is trying to say, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and get up and walk? Well, at a human level, it's far easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can know if you actually did that or not. But if you tell a paralytic, rise and walk, and he stays down, well, then it's obviously you're not a, a man of power. You're not God, etc. So Jesus in verse 10 says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. What Jesus does is to tell the paralytic to get up and walk. And when that paralytic gets up and walk, it gives some reason to believe that maybe Jesus actually did forgive those sins as well. I think it also shows that Jesus, while I think forgiveness is our greatest need, it also shows that Jesus cares about all of the needs in our life. He's not unconcerned with paralysis. He's not concerned with your financial trouble. He's not concerned with your physical distresses or some broken relationship in your life. Jesus cares about all of it. But the forgiveness of sins is this greatest need. But I think the story is even more amazing. The paralytic never asked Jesus to forgive his sins. And what does that suggest? Well... If Jesus can read the minds of the religious leaders, he can certainly read the mind of the paralytic. And so while the paralytic did not clearly articulate his desire or need to be forgiven, Jesus knew what was in that man's heart. And the desires of that paralytic's heart and his faith, which may have been very weak. I mean, I'm sure, you know, he might have wanted to say to his friends, hey, really, do you think this idea of, you know, going down through the roof is a good idea? 
He may not have had much faith, but the Bible says the faith of a mustard seed, even small faith in the right object of faith, Jesus, is enough for Jesus to move towards you and to forgive you and to pour his grace into him. And so while that paralytic did not articulate his need, he did not ask for forgiveness. Jesus knew what was in his heart and the desire of that paralytic's heart moved Jesus to pour out his grace and solve that paralytic's greatest problem. Jesus is ready to forgive you, but you just got to come to him. And you can come to him even with your doubts and even with your small faith. If your faith is in him, he delights to forgive you from your sin, past, present, and future. But one more thing about this is pretty amazing. Is it's true that humanly speaking, to say rise up and walk is a lot harder to say than your sins are forgiven because we can see if the paralytic gets up or not. But I would suggest to you that this is one of Mark's enigmatic phrases in the early story of Mark. You're not going to think about this till you finish the whole book of Mark. And then you'll think back to this. Because if Jesus truly is God, and if Jesus brought the material universe and spoken into existence out of nothing, healing a paralytic is not that difficult. But what would it cost Jesus to forgive that paralytic? Oh, it would cost him a lot. It would be way harder. You see, when, when you see the picture of God in the Bible, God is not a God who can just wipe away your sins without the payment of those sins being paid. He can't just wipe away your debt without somebody paying the debt for your sin against God and against all the other people you've hurt and harmed. Jesus, God says, I must punish the guilty. And so for that paralytic sins to be healed, the basis of that forgiveness that Jesus offers to him is that Jesus is going to go all the way to the cross to pay for that man's sins. And it's not simply the physical aspects of the crucifixion that are so disastrous. It's the spiritual weight of Jesus who was God, fully God and fully man, who had been in communion with his father God from all eternity past. He had never known sin. And now on that cross, your sin and mine on Jesus, the paralytic sin on Jesus. We know this was, was incredibly difficult because we know on the night before Jesus was crucified, he was stumbling around in a garden, sweating drops of blood, almost passing out, thinking about what he was going to have to do to forgive your sins and mine by paying the price for your sins and mine on that cross. It will cost Jesus everything. And because he paid that price... Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive you through his death. Trust him. Believe him. He's the only one who can do this. That's the second lesson. Let's look at the third lesson. We'll just look at a a very short little story right after uh, that Mark includes right after the, 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 the healing of the paralytic. I'll tell you what the lesson is, but let's look at the text. Verse 13, he went out. This is talking about Jesus again. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. 
And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Levi, we will know him as Matthew because he does write the gospel of Matthew, is a tax collector. He is the vilest person in Israel. He is hated by all of his fellow countrymen. Why? Because he was probably corrupt. He probably built people out of their, uh, and charged too much taxes. But at the same time, he worked for Herod Antipas, we believe. And Herod Antipas's government was in, was in league with the Roman Empire. And so that government was hated, not seen as legitimate by most pious Jews living at the time. And so Levi would have been hated by everybody. This was the person least likely to come to faith in Jesus. And yet that's who Jesus goes after. And now Levi begins to follow him. And what the third lesson is, is that there's nobody that's beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. Nobody. Not even this tax collector who would have been viewed as the worst of sinners. I know many of you are familiar with Corey Ten Boom. She lived in Holland during World War II. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. And her family, particularly her father and her sister, worked together to hide Jewish individuals and families from the Nazis when the Nazis went in and controlled Holland. But they eventually were found out and they ended up in Ravensbrück where um, Betsy, Corey's sister would die. Corey Tim Boom survived uh, in that concentration camp, survived, went back to Holland, and then shortly after World War II, she made a number of trips into Germany precisely to tell the German people who were filled with lots of shame as they realized the horrible things that had happened. And Corey would remind them is that when we confess our sins to God, when we come to Jesus, God cast all of those sins into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Corey Tim Boom in some of her writings would say that oftentimes when she would give this talk on forgiveness in Germany, two years after the war in 1947, that many times the audience would leave in complete silence, struggling to believe that forgiveness was possible for them. And one time in this same speaking tour in 1947, she noticed in the, in the audience one of the guards at Ravensbrook. The guard didn't really recognize her, but he came up to her after her talk. He didn't seem to recognize her, but Corey had talked about being in Ravensbrook, and the guard had said, I was at Ravensbrook. The man's told her, since that time I've become a Christian, since the end of the war. And I know that God has forgiven me for all the cruel things that I did in that concentration camp and in the war. But I would really like to hear it from your lips, Corey. He stretched it out his hand and he asked Corey, Tin Boom, will you forgive me? And Corey, in describing her own thoughts, said she stood there and, and she says this, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, but I couldn't forgive him. 
She said, I wrestled with the decision for what seemed like hours, but it was only seconds. She said, I prayed a little prayer, Jesus, help me. And so very woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down my arm and it sprang into our joined hands. And then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I said to this man, I forgive you, brother. No one is beyond the forgiveness of God. Not you and not anyone you know. And when we experience the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide, it enables us to believe that we are forgiven, but it also enables us to believe that other people around us can be forgiven. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I say to the glory of God, he says, and utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anyone, anything. And I think what we have to admit to is when we struggle with bitterness, when we struggle to forgive, it's precisely because we've lost grip with the forgiveness of Jesus that he can give us. That's the third lesson. One last thing. Verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. What seems to be happening here is that Levi is giving a party for all of his terrible friends. See, the reality is Levi wouldn't have had many friends among the good people in society because they hated him. So he had to hang out with all of the people who weren't really that great. The other tax collectors, the other sinners. This also may have been Levi's retirement party from the tax office. Because once you left the tax office, you weren't getting back in. And so there this group of the worst of Israel... The worst sinners all together at a party. And you know where is Jesus? Right in the middle of that party. Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he hang out with the outcasts, the misfits, the, the people who nobody should be hanging out with? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is modeling to us is his ministry was to come to broken people, people like you and me, and rescue us and forgive us from our sin. And the model he has for us is that we, as his followers today, are to enter a broken world and to spend time with spiritually broken people and to spend time with the outcast in our society. Why? So that we can love them and care for them, but also point them to Jesus who can provide the forgiveness they actually need. And I must say, as a pastor, I struggle with this at times. 
I love doing what I do here at the church. But it's possible for me to spend every waking moment with Christian people. Now, I know you sin too, so I know that. I have to work very hard to make sure that I am intentionally spending a fair amount of time with people who have never really heard the message of the forgiveness of Jesus articulated to them and offered to them. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. You've got to make time for it. You've got to work at it. You've got to go to parties and gatherings. And it's not always easy, but it's what we're called to do. To build a relationship, and in the course of a relationship, you do exactly what Jesus did. You offer the message of forgiveness that only Jesus can provide to very broken people. And that's the fourth lesson. I want us to bow in prayer. And I want to pray uh, a prayer of confession. We didn't have that earlier in the service. Normally we do. I want to pray a prayer of confession. I'd like you to silently join me. Different parts of this confession may, may, may remind you of, of things you need to confess to God about. Let's pray. Gracious and forgiving Father, how often we fail to show the same grace and forgiveness to others that you have given to us. We find it desperately hard to show forgiveness to our spouses, friends, parents, children, co-workers, bosses. Instead, we keep a record of the wrongs that they have committed against us. We cherish that record, record deep in our hearts and we use it against them in order to justify ourselves. We hold grudges against others. We have lashed out in revenge at the slightest provocation. We are swift to anger and slow to forgive. Yet, Jesus, you are not like us. Even though we have committed far worse sins against you, you do not keep a record of our wrongs. Instead, you separate our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Even now, whenever we rebel against you, you freely forgive us all our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. And you continually work all things together for our good. Help us today to taste afresh your grace to us in the gospel. And to see anew the depths of our sin that you have forgiven. Transform us by your grace so that we may become people who readily forgive others just as you have already forgiven us. May we truly learn to forgive those who sin against us from the depths of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.